As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems all in Notion to support the business as we grew and it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. The only thing you have to do on YouTube is to make people interested in something. Nothing else. That is literally it. That's Ed Lawrence. You might know Ed from his YouTube channel, Film Booth, where he helps YouTubers level up their channel. But the thing is, Ed approaches teaching differently. He's the answer to the question, what if learning wasn't boring? I say it like this. It's like when you're a kid and you don't want to eat vegetables, your mom would mash up a ton of broccoli and put it in your burger. It's the same thing you got to give them a burger and put some broccoli in it. (laughs) So in this episode, you'll learn how to use story as a teaching device, how bingeable videos can take first-time watchers to loyal fans, Ed's production process, and how to make your boring ideas sexy. You said part of the process for you making a video is that straight away, you basically acknowledge that your idea is not interesting. And I felt personally attacked by that. And I want to hear you talk about uh, why that's an important part of the, the creation process. I realized a long time ago that the only thing you have to do on YouTube is to make people interested in something and keep them interested. Nothing else. That is literally it. And the problem we have is we come up with an idea and we naturally think it's good. And it might be, but it doesn't mean it's interesting. So it's our jobs as YouTubers to stop and throw as many possible objections as we can at our idea and say, that's boring. That word in that title is boring. Our viewers don't care about that word in that title. Boring. So let me give you an idea. I made a video about Mr. Who's the Boss and Marques Brownlee. And I started off my process with, I want to talk to YouTubers about how to present. That is the most boring thing I can possibly talk about. There isn't a YouTuber in the world who wakes up in the morning and goes, I need to learn how to present. I've, I've got to, I've got, they wake up in the morning and they go, my channel ain't growing. The hell's wrong? And they get upset. So straight away, boring. I'm like, right. I need to talk about it. It's massive. How do I make it more interesting? So I throw what I call the idea presentation round. 
Do I make a video called five tips to present? Do I make a video called five mistakes you make that will wreck your channel and just hide it in there? Do I make a video called I taught strangers how to present, have a thumbnail on the street where I like Noah Kagan style? Or do I make a video called the secrets Marques Brownlee used to present or something along those lines? So I pick a pathway, a story, and I'm like, well, how to present is boring. And I'm never going to get many views on that. I would in search, but I don't want to wait six months to get views. So then I'd be like, okay, the mistakes one. Yeah, I've done a few of them. I could disguise it and not tell people it's about presenting, but maybe I want to harness social hacking. So I'm like, whose story can I tell? Who got over presenting? That's the winner. Let's get a famous YouTuber in the thumbnail who's way more clickable than me and tell their story. Because the cool thing about this is I know that most of the biggest YouTubers in the world have their first video still. So all I have to do is raid their channel and I can show the progression. And then I know my viewers don't care about presenting. They, 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 they care about growing a channel. So all I need to do is tie in the subgrowth to their presenting and be look and say, look how big a part the presenting played in the thing that you actually care about. That's why you need to care and get good at this. Suddenly, a really boring idea has become actually very interesting because they understand why it matters and they're watching people who they admire overcome exactly the same problem they have. And that becomes an interesting idea. And if you do not take your videos through that, they will be boring <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. And when you talk about interest, I think, I think in a, an assumption inside of that idea is that our goal as YouTubers is to get more views, more audience, typically from people that we may have not reached before. And that's why it needs to be interesting. Is that right? Yes and no. So my goal as a YouTuber isn't to get more views. It's to build a community of viewers who come back. The biggest problem is everyone right now is chasing views, especially in the finance niche. They want to do side hustle and passive income videos because that's where the views are. And I'm like, that's where the, that's where the views are. But when that trend goes, you won't be left with any viewers. So I'm thinking long-term. So that's the first thing is like, what's interesting to the viewers? And that sometimes means not going after the big views for someone like me. Now I'm a business. So at the end of the day, the, the ultimate goal is not views, it's to grow a business and a community. So I'd probably think about that first than just say it's all about views. And then it's a game of thinking, how do I make something interesting to those viewers? And sometimes we go a little bit wider. So that video I just spoke to you about, the whole point of that was to go wider. I wrote the entire script so that my gran or a kid can understand it. Barely related it back to even making a YouTube video. It was just a story that I thought a lot of people would enjoy. And that worked. Was it the best thing for my business? Maybe not. In fact, the next video I put out, which was tailored way more to my viewers, got absolutely hammered because it was so unrelated to the new audience I built. And actually, I didn't want to cater for that much because I brought in too many Mr. Who's the Boss fans. Mm. So that was the first part. I forgot what the second thing you asked me was. <laughs> well, let's, let's keep going down this train. Tell me some other ways that you pressure test your ideas to make them more interesting. First things first, it's just a lot of trial and error. Like you make videos and they don't do very well. And then you're like, you beat yourself up and you're like, why didn't that work? Six months later, you'll look back and go, you idiot, of course it didn't work. You can change the thumbnail and bring that thing back to life. But usually I come up with an idea and then I'm like, how the hell do I make this more interesting? I need to wrap it up in a more interesting way, a story of some kind. And then I will mainly focus on the packaging. So I don't go any further until I've come up with a packaging thumbnail and title. So you have to have feedback on YouTube. It's just, you cannot do this on your own. So feedback is a really important part. So I have someone I do weekly feedback with, and then I put it into my Discord. And I have two different discords, three uh, from different 
services that I have. And I ask my students who are my avatars, which one are you clicking on? And it's always the one I didn't think. <laughs> so I've got three different packaging styles and I lead with that one. And sometimes they're right and sometimes I'm right. So I'll flip it when I release it. And then I learn and I'm like, right, that word got more of a response. That graph, you know, saved the video from flopping. It is really just a big game of feedback, YouTube. And I don't think people realize you should not be doing this on your own. You need feedback on your writing, editing, thumbnails. And ideally, the more of that you get, the better you will get. That is kind of how I would stress test it. But really, the first few hours of a video when you release it, you can learn a lot about your community by looking at the amount of impressions you get. So if I'm looking at it and my impressions are down, don't really pay too much attention to the click-through rate because impressions is what matters. And click-through rate will go low. But if impressions are high, that's what we want. Uh, if impressions aren't what I want, you know, I'll change the thumbnail and I'll quickly learn, okay, the community reacted to that. In fact, the video I've got up right now did rubbish. I flipped out the thumbnail, put one word in it. It's now starting to move a lot quicker. So another way of kind of stress testing is when you're actually in the game. But as a small new channel, it's not really possible to do that. So as you get bigger, you get a few more luxuries that you can play with. When you are doing this testing of the packaging with uh, your community, with the people around you, have you started scripting yet at that point? Or do you script once you've settled on a package? Just don't do anything. You have to have the, there's no point wasting my time on a video until I have packaged it. Because if we go back to the example I used, how to present a YouTube video, the title that I came up with was the silent hack YouTubers used to hook you. So now I have that, I have to write an introduction that undoes the clickbait, sets up the value the viewer is going to get, makes them understand why this is an important story. If I started with how to present a video, I'm stuck with, okay, now I'm going to show you how to present a video. And I can't possibly use another title or thumbnail that isn't related to this boring introduction. So you've got to do your thumbnail and title first because it is now our job is, and honestly believe this, it is no longer about making videos YouTube. It's who can come up with the most interesting idea thumbnail and title, and then how do you sandwich a video into that idea? And if you think like that, it changes the game. Yeah, I've been, I've been a little resistant to that because it's so counter to how I've created content in the past outside of video. But I'm realizing that that is absolutely like the best way to put it like you have to you compete on the packaging and then it's like now how do i construct a video that satisfies that package in the viewer who clicked on it yeah you said something really interesting which was you need to script an intro that undoes the clickbait help me unpack that let's say for example i know for a fact if i make a video about lighting no one's clicking on that but let's say right i've got again they got to understand this stuff you know it's, it's so i've got to give them what they want and then deliver what they need so I'd call it something like the number one mistake destroying your video's growth, you know, your video views. And then I write an introduction that's like, it tells a short story. And it's like, a few years ago, I had 10,000 subscribers and I made one change to my system and my channel skyrocketed to a quarter of a million. In this video, I'm going to show you what that change was and how to use it too. And all you need is a light. Suddenly I've set up the value and the reason they need to care about lighting. And then I've put it up against a result they care about too. So they're like, I'm willing to listen to that. It might not feel like the thing they necessarily clicked on too much, but how else am I going to get them to watch a video about lighting? Because a lot of people, me included, who's using an awful light right now, it's, it's very harsh, underrated the value of light for a very long time. And actually I was a fool. I should have learned about it. I just never had that deep desire to click on it because I just really didn't know why. And if someone paired it against something I cared about, then I'd have clicked on it. 
So it's giving them what they want and then delivering them what they need and making sure your introduction makes people understand the reason why what you're about to say is so important to them because they probably would have never clicked on it in the first place. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, this, it's this tension that I often feel of, okay, we have this package that we think is compelling, but we've really dialed up the inherent idea to like a 12, you know, where it's like, yes, this, this title is kind of true, but it's like an extreme version of the truth. And I almost feel bad that I'm making it seem so extreme. And you, you then want to like resolve that tension and guilt you're feeling early on in the video. But I wonder like how early is too early to undo the clickbait? And does that like hit a payoff too quickly where people say, okay, I get what you're going for now and I'm going to stop watching. No, so you won't. You don't pay anything off. You just introduce them to this idea uh, and how and connect it with the title. So click, mm. clickbait really at the end of the day is you make a video. The video is not about. If you make a title, it's not particularly giving away the nitty gritty details. The viewer has an expectation of what they think the viewer is about. But you can play with that expectation, and you can put a compelling argument together that makes you go, "I'm going to stick around and watch it." And I totally agree. I absolutely hated the idea of doing this. And I've spoken to some other big YouTubers who've been around for years and they were like, my channel is losing traction. We used to be the biggest in the niche. And I said, you just do it. You've got to take this method. And they did it and they messaged me and they were like, we've had five one out of 10s in a row. Not one person has commented on our title or thumbnail. And I looked and I went, they don't even look like clickbait. They just look like interesting titles. And also, you know, for those of you who are alive during the newspaper eras, newspaper headlines outrageous. There was one in the UK, it was called Freddy Star Ate My Hamster. And all he did was put a hamster in his mouth. And it's a famous headline because it was outrageous. It got people to buy the paper. So, you know, as educators, really, it's our job to make things more interesting. I I, I say it like this. It's like when you're a kid and you don't want to eat vegetables, your mum would mash up a ton of broccoli and put it in your burger. It's the same thing. You've got to give them a burger and put some broccoli in it. (laughs) After a quick break, Ed and I talk about how to use story as a device to move a video forward. So stick around. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot creator. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. 
It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several podcast movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com slash science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. And now back to my conversation with Ed Lawrence. So if I am somebody who's getting started on YouTube or maybe I'm already making videos and I feel good about the information that I want to transmit to somebody, what are the first steps that I take so that I can actually use story as a device to make that information more interesting? I think the first thing is don't try and bite off a massive video that tells a story from start to finish. So the video essay guys are really good at this, but it can get overwhelming. The easiest thing to do is just to use a story to make a point. It's, it's just engaging. So for example, if you make a video called five mistakes that ruin your cooking, most people, they jump in and they say, mistake number one, don't put too much salt in your soup. And the viewer's like, oh, thanks. I don't need any more information. Like you literally do not need to say anything else. They're like, oh, because salt right. will ruin the taste and cause an, an overload of sulfur, right? It's boring. Whereas if you turn around and you said, okay, this first mistake takes me back to the time I cooked for Queen Elizabeth. I spent hours preparing. Everything was cut up perfectly. And they took it. They took the bowl of soup to her table. She sat down and she said, this is delicious, dear. It's a shame there's so much salt in it. And that was the time I realized that you just never want to put too much salt in your soup. So always put slightly less than you think you need. Mm. Point done. Way more interesting, right? And you were probably, when I told you that... if we use that word interest again, which hopefully isn't offending you too much now, right? <laughs> is, <laughs> I felt attacked, but I'm over it. I'm good now. I'm good now. <laughs> no, I, I, I wasn't personally attacking you <laughs> or anyone. So, but if we use the word interesting here, right? The reason a story is interesting is because when you listen to one, something happens. So when I told you that story, as long as you were paying attention, in your head, you suddenly saw someone walking up to the queen with a bowl of soup, and you imagined the table, the plates, the room, maybe what she was wearing, and then you imagined her, you were in the story. It's mm. not a passive experience. So I invited you to use your brain, and that is what makes it so much more interesting than just saying don't put salt in the soup, because the viewer became part of it, and they got to fill in the gaps. So that's the first place to start, It's like how can I tell a little story? The second place, Alex Hormozzi is the master of this, is just have a story your own story, the thing you overcame that the viewers want. You know, so Alex Hormozzi's story is, I don't know how over-dramatized it is, but he tells it, listen to any podcast he's on. He tells the same flipping story every time. So powerful. It's like, you know, I was down to my last dollar, tons of staff, not making any money. And I had to make a hundred grand in 24 hours. And then he tells his story where he like broke up with his 
wife or his girlfriend back then. And she had to go to a conference and land tons of sales in order to land this business. And even though she was hating him in that moment, she did it. And you're just like, oh, this is such a powerful story. Like what an amazing woman, what an amazing guy. And you get so pulled into it, but he has the result. And he talks about challenges that you as a business owner will have too. You start to relate. And I'm imagining his wife at this conference landing deals. It's so engaging. So you, Jay, as a business owner, you know, you've got your core like membership offering, right? You can talk yep. about something that in your life you had to overcome where a community of people really pulled you through. And at the end of that story, the main payoff is that is the moment I realized that no business owner should ever go alone. You have to stick together and pull your information and your advice. Otherwise, you're just not going to ever get anywhere that fast. That's the first thing is like, what is your story that you can lean into? You don't have to tell it in a whole video, but you can use examples of it. And then you can like use other people's stories as well. Or you could make one up like a little skip or something like that. But it's kind of like the starting point. Let's talk about metaphors a little bit. I had that on my list of something to talk about, but I wasn't sure how to step into it. So you talk about metaphors a lot. You use metaphors a lot. Why are metaphors one of your favorite tools? So let's go back to this idea of how do I make videos that keep an expert happy and a beginner happy? And really what you have to do is you have to take information that's complex and make it understandable so anyone can enjoy it. In a way where the expert goes, I know that, but damn, that was smart. And the beginner goes, wow, I finally understand this. So a metaphor is when you just, you can just take a bottle, you know, and a problem that's complex and relate it to drinking out of a bottle. So I've done some before where I used a metaphor of not having enough time to run a business, a YouTube channel, you know, see your friends, see your family. And I was like, how can I possibly vis visually show this is a problem? So people can see you don't have enough hours in the day. Because I can say that the problem was she didn't have enough time. But I get a cup and I fill it with water and then loads of other cups and say, this cup here is her business. This is her friends. This is her family. And then when it gets to the YouTube channel, the cup's dry. You visually understand the problem and it just sinks in. And again, you're thinking as a viewer, and that's the key to educational content is like make them think because then they're listening, then they're learning. So metaphors just allow the viewer to feel smart. They allow them to understand things and they allow them to relate to everyday items that are really easy to grasp. And I think... Pretty much every time I'm trying to explain something, I think, how can I come up with a metaphor for this? Or how can I find a story? If I don't use either of those, I've been lazy. <laughs> I want to pull on a couple threads here. One of them being this idea of if you write to a viewer who you kind of presume has seen a video before, that's like the default of how I want to create content generally. But I always have this voice in the back of my head like, hey, you can't reference this idea that's in a past video or a past newsletter or a past essay because you don't know that the viewer is watching that. You're going to lose them. Like I'm still in the mindset if I want things to grow farther, go farther than they already are in terms of views. So help me help me understand like how how much presumed knowledge should I put in these videos for somebody who is probably new to my channel? So the, the knowledge thing is tough. Because as an educator, how can we possibly know what they know and don't know? And actually, if we start talking about stuff they know, they're bored. And if we go too deep, they're off. That's where story comes in. Because we don't have to give too much. And we can keep everyone entertained and happy. So when I write for my viewers, I'm not writing so that they have to have seen previous videos to understand it. I'm using humor that I know they'll enjoy. I might do a reference to an old video. Mm. I might use a style they've once enjoyed. So mm. it's not about... The, the cold viewer still needs to watch it and get it. And every now and then I might throw in an in-joke that's quick. 
it's like, boom, they're not going to know. But I don't want to feel the, you know, I, I always think of YouTube as the playground and there's the cool kids standing in the center chatting and you're on the outside. And what you want to do is you want to be welcoming to the cold viewers. You don't want them to make them feel like they're not part of the gang. So if you go too deep on a tangent, you know, it can be counterproductive, but at the same time, it's like comedy, right? They have ongoing gags that run throughout series and you can bring them in without making anyone put off. But at the same time, every video I make has a goal and it's often not get lots of new viewers. It often might be bring people back to the channel or it might be like, oh, let's try and get people to sign up to the email. But it's not necessarily about new. You know, if you keep writing for the new, you can often start playing it too safe and it gets a bit boring. So you kind of got to make a decision here. I totally agree with what you've said though. You do need to be careful, but I also want to have enough personality and fun with the regular viewers who come back because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. It's all about those guys to me. You've been talking about your community lately and how you're trying to build a community around this. And I'd love to hear how you think about that in a YouTube setting where you get so many like first-time viewers, maybe just one-time viewers. So how do you think about nurturing a first-time viewer into being someone that's like, yeah, I like Ed's stuff. Maybe I'll subscribe, but I'll at least continue to watch when it pops up in my, in my recommended area. If I'm honest, it's making videos that are bingeable. If you can make videos where people laugh, smile, learn something, and they get to the end and they click another one, they will become part of your community. Now, they're either going to do two things. They're going to click off straight away and go, no, thank you. I hate this guy. Or they're going to go, yes, please. So if I look at my end screen retention rates, so I have these end screens in my video where I'm always setting up the problem people still have. The retention is usually between 70 or 80% of the next video. Hmm. In fact, all of my end screen retentions are high. So my whole channel is designed to be fun. It's not supposed to be too much hard work. It's supposed to make, but I want to naturally want to watch another one. And it's supposed to kind of divide in terms of stuff. I do weird stuff. I have, you know, opinions people not agree with. You love it or hate it, but those that love it, they come in, they watch the stuff, and then they'll come back, hopefully. But, you know, at the same time, YouTube is most people quit. Most of my audience who subscribed probably never made a video or, or a lot of them have quit, right? So I can't stop that. So for me, it's like make the content entertaining, make it engaging. And then I like to, you know, my email list is my next thing. So that's where I'm building a way more refined community. So that's, that's like, look, I'm going to do a weekly update. I put a lot of effort into it. And every week I want, to, I want to make the best email about YouTube there is. And I want to bring people in and I want them to get excited when a message comes in. And then I help to nurture that community in there as well. And also on Twitter, I think Twitter is fantastic. And again, same with threads. I want to be putting out as much effort into my Twitter as my YouTube because there's a different community on Twitter who don't watch my content. And they all come together in one place. But I'm really focused on new is great but I make videos most of the time for someone who's watched a few. It's really boring making it for a new viewer because you have to play it safe. If I can mm. write to someone who's watched five or six of my videos, that's so much fun. And I feel like I'm writing and talking to a friend. So it's, it's, it's kind of treating them with respect, wanting them to have a good time always, wanting them to come back and watch the content and then wanting to deliver a high experience. And you'll just find that if you do that, people trust you and they, they grow to like you and, that's how I've been doing it anyway. When we come back, Ed and I dig into the specifics of his video production process. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And now please enjoy the rest of my conversation with Ed Lawrence. Can you help me understand your timelines a little bit? 
Like how much time do you usually spend in the packaging phase versus scripting versus recording versus editing? 70% of my time is probably planning. 20% is probably editing. <sighs> Tiny bit filming. <laughs> okay. The thing you need to spend the time on if you want to get results on YouTube is the planning. Is it the making the idea interesting, the packaging, the thumbnail, the title, the introduction, the end, then the middle, then write the thing, then film it. All of that information is where the growth is for the majority of people. Because, or well, people I work with in terms of educators, you know, if, if you're doing a, a vlog style thing, you kind of got to know the point of it. And I still think you should try and work out the packaging before and get a rough idea. But a lot of that writing would kind of be done in the editing potentially or afterwards. Yeah, I, if I spent 70% of my time planning a video and writing it and doing the fun and title, I'd be way more confident that would get more views than a video I spent 50, 25% on. It's planning is everything. How long do you spend producing an entire video? And so I'm trying to think like through the scripting part specifically, because scripting is where I'm personally getting stuck a lot of times right now. And so I want to know how long you're spending on that, what the process looks like. So the thing that always takes me the time is how do I come up with an idea? So I have like tried and tested funnels and titles. I just repeat, but I'm kind of creative. I like to try new things. Stupid. I should just repeat what worked every time, really. And if you repeat what worked, you know, you come up with a title and just make like Noah Kagan does just makes it slightly different each time. You know, it saves a lot of headache. So that's one way of speeding this up. But writing is different. So going back to what we were saying about writing to my audience, I wrote a video the other day that was just bonkers over the top. Just smashed it out very quick, easy. Because I wasn't constantly going, how am I going to cater for the cold audience? How am I? I was like, I don't care about them. I just want to make my return viewers enjoy something. So that was pretty easy. I blocked two hours a day off for writing. And sometimes I didn't write anything. (laughs) I just think... So it is very different for each script and who I'm writing for. If I'm writing for the cold audience, it's a nightmare. It takes ages. I don't particularly enjoy it because I'm always thinking, oh, do they understand that? You know, is that too clear? Is that going to annoy them? The edit takes a long time. And actually my editing will take a massively long time. So let's say 75% in the planning is probably not fair because the edit is a beast in mine. So let's say 50-50. But I do want to emphasize for most people who don't edit on the same scale as me, it should be much more (laughs) <laughs> than if it's only take, you know, it's taking three hours to edit. You st- I still think you want to be thinking about spending longer planning. I think whatever you're doing, you know, these things, ideas and writing and stuff can come quick. But, it, you know, it just, if you throw objections at everything you do all the time, it's going to take longer, but you're going to start realizing, okay, it's not interesting to my audience. That's boring to my audience. How can we make this more interesting? How can we put a metaphor in here? How can we put a story in here? And that's what will then add on the time, but it's definitely the right way of thinking. I know I'm really getting into the weeds here and being a little invasive, but I'm going to hang out here for a little bit longer. So when you're, when you're writing this, do you, do you write like a version that is information first and then come back to sprinkle in story and metaphor? Or do you write linearly like I'm adding in story and metaphor while I'm exploring the entire you know, arc of the video? So I try and plan it as much as I can. Problem is, sometimes when you plan, the creative juices don't flow so much. So a lot of the time, I'll start writing. And then I'm like, what I call the creativity round, where I go, this is boring, this is boring, this is boring, this is boring. Make it interesting. How am I going to do that? But some videos I set with the goal of turning the whole thing into a metaphor from start to finish. 
And that means that every single second needs to tie back into the metaphor. If I'm making five points, I did one which was about cleaning a car that I had to drive to my friend's wedding. And along the way, I used every point of the car cleaning process and the driving process to relate back to YouTube to teach people about retention and so on, which was the challenge. Because <laughs> half of it was the story of me trying to get to a wedding. And the other half was me writing education, right? This is kind of weird. It goes back to that thing. I just always tell myself it's boring. And it's harsh. You get used to telling yourself you're boring. But it's fantastic at the same time because you put the time into the right place to make it that little bit more engaging. And for me, I think that makes a big difference. How do you know when a story is dragging on too much? You know, you, you can have a video where you have like stories within the video, several of them. How do you know like when you're dragging out a story too much and the point was made earlier on? Yeah, okay. This is a really common problem. So you as a writer... You have to understand your viewers have a brain. Video is amazing because it has footage, text, animation. So in a second, I can get across a point far, quick, you know, far quicker than you can writing. What you need to ask yourself is, this next sentence, do I need it? Or if I put a bit of text and some B-roll on the previous sentence, would the viewer watch that and fill in that gap? and make that sentence no longer relevant. And if the answer is yes, without that becoming confusing or overwhelming, you can delete it. It's kind of it. And that's kind of what we have to trust is that actually, you know, we don't always have to give them every minuscule detail because they'll work it out for themselves a lot of the time. Uh, it's tough because like, I want to believe viewers are smart, but also- Mine are. <laughs> I've, I've also heard you say like, being more general sometimes and not assuming knowledge I mean, assuming knowledge and being smart is two separate things, I suppose. Yeah. Knowledge is something you gain. Intelligence is something that is like your ability to understand and grasp something. So when I say assume they're smart, is you have to give them enough information to make them understand it. But we need to look at it and go, have I given them enough here in a way that they can easily understand? And that's what I'm saying. Like putting a bit of, saying a sentence and then adding a bit of text on screen that doesn't necessarily say exactly what it is, but maybe fills in a gap or just showing the visuals. So... Let me give you an example, right? I use this as an example a lot. Video one. Jay, you're now my girlfriend, okay? <laughs> Jay, this is what happens in video one. Jay, it's not working. We need to break up, okay? <laughs> and you're like, oh, sad. Right? And don't worry, Jay, it'll be okay. Video two, I didn't say a word. I just slide, I, the camera looks at my face and I've got this look on it and I slide my keys across the table and I just look at her and shrug. I have just told the entire story without saying a word. So when you put that on top of the things that you're saying in a video, the viewer picks up on all this stuff. And that often means that if I'd gone on to add more detail, it would have got boring to them because they got it. So you have to, you know, obviously use your common sense and go, is there enough here to understand it? But the key thing is, have we given them enough and then move on? I edit my scripts heavily. And then I usually cut two minutes at least out of every video in the edit because I'm like, do you know what? They don't need that info. They, they'll get it. They'll get it. You said a couple of times that you, you spent a lot of time on the intro, which doesn't surprise me. But you've also mentioned that you spent a lot of time on the ending. And I haven't heard a lot of people talk about the ending. I've heard a lot of people talk about the intro because a lot of people optimize for retention. They say if you can prevent the big dip in the beginning, then that's going to carry through at the end of the video. But I haven't heard a lot of people talk about the ending. So how do you think about endings to your videos? People who know my channel are going to think right now I'm talking about the end screen where I point and say, watch this video next. I'm not. That takes two seconds. I'm talking about the end of the story. So let me give you an example. If you were watching a film and you were absolutely loving it and I was watching it with you and I stood up and I turned off the TV 
three quarters of the way through. You would say, Oi, what are you doing? And I say, Oh, why'd you care? And you went, I want to know what happens. Oh, okay, I'll put it back on. So if we want to know what happens, and this is the ultimate thing for watch time, people need to know what happens, we need to make sure the ending is planned before the middle. Because the whole goal is to drive people to the ending. So I plan my intro, and I need to set something up that the viewer wants to get to the end to watch. If I leave the ending till last, I potentially write an ending that wasn't you know, set up in the beginning to keep people sticking around for. So I'm always thinking, what's the end? <laughs> and then I put the bits in the middle. And really, I mean, when they teach public speaking, they say the thing that people remember from your talk is the beginning and the end. And you could say the same is true for like a talking head video, really, because at the end of the day, if it's just a simple talking head video, you are potentially doing public speaking. So one little technique I use, I call the loop, where I do something at the end, which happened at the beginning. So we used to do it in our production company with business business videos. And, and it's this very satisfying feeling. So you nod back to the joke you made at the start. So I did an interview with Joshua Mayer recently. He picks up a candle at the start and he blows it out. And he, so he lights it. And I said, look, that candle's pointless. Just a trick. Blow it out at the end. And it creates a loop. So if you make a joke or tell a story at the beginning, what you need to do at the end is reference it. So let's use the bowl of soup with the queen example. And at the end of that video, that's where I would loop back to that and be like, and after all of that, it turns out my bowl of soup was the one that was left in the kitchen and my boyfriend Brian's soup had too much salt in it. You know, and it was like, uh, it's just uh, like a nice yeah, little yeah. nod, right? And it creates this feeling of satisfaction. And again, if we want to make bingeable content, the more we can satisfy someone or make them laugh or make them feel something, or more importantly, the thing that makes them feel smart, they go, oh, that's clever. And they feel good about it. The more likely they are to watch another video. And that's when you can maybe hit them with an end screen. 